This is the Monday, September 24th, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine welcomes aboard the infamous bank-robbing legends Bonnie and Clyde, tearing a gash across 1930s America at the height of the Great Depression. Returning to ride shotgun with us on this crime spree is Jenny L. Walsh, who we chatted with about her debut novel, the origin story, Becoming Bonnie. You can stream that conversation in our archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening now. In that book, Jenny chambered a fictionalized version of Bonnie Parker, who, armed only with her dreams, experiences the crash of the century when she meets her soulmate. But you don't have to have read Becoming Bonnie to enjoy Side by Side. If you want to get to the shooting and the gunplay, pick up Side by Side, a novel of Bonnie and Clyde, and enjoy it right from the first page. In Side by Side, Jenny introduces us to a couple just scraping by in a crippled America. Instead of basking in Bonnie's love, snug in her arms, Clyde is suffering all the privations and abuse you can imagine in a Texas prison. And if you get out, what future do you have? It's never easy for an ex-con to find a job, but at a time when 25% of the workforce is already unemployed, it'll be impossible. And that's what sends our couple right back on the road to what they know best, take the money and run. Jenny L. Walsh is an award-winning advertising copywriter and graduate of Villanova University. Visit her at JennyLWalsh.com to learn more about the author and her fictionalized accounts of this legendary duo. You can also follow her at JennyLWalsh on Twitter, and note that that first name is Jenny with an I. Okay, now that we've locked and loaded, let's pile into that doomed 1934 Ford Deluxe, where we'll find Bonnie and Clyde side by side. I'm joined via Skype by Jenny L. Walsh, author of the crime spree story Side by Side, a novel of Bonnie and Clyde. Welcome back to the History Author Show, Jenny. Thank you. It's wonderful to talk to you again. Well, it's wonderful to read you again and to be able to speak with you again. I enjoyed Becoming Bonnie. It was an excellent book, and it was a lot of fun. This book (laughs) brings us back to the characters that we enjoyed, but in a completely different part of their lives. This life of theirs on the run is a far cry from when we first meet Bonnie in Becoming Bonnie. She originally is there at the beginning of the book quoting a line from William Butler Yeats. The line is, but I being poor have only my dreams. In Side by Side, it jumped out at me that Bonnie describes those dreams as, quote, stuck in the mud with Clyde incarcerated. Her dreams are not able to come to life the way that she might have liked them to. She's at a point in her life where 
she's had to accept that, in the words of Bruce Springsteen, he writes in one of his songs that the dreams that you don't surrender, the world just strips away. That's the lyric that I thought of when I saw Bonnie in Side by Side. Even when you look at the two books side by side, small s's, and you see them, the first book is very colorful. It's got a sheen to it. She's wearing that jazz age dress Bonnie is, and you can see her going for a night in the town as a flapper. Everything is exciting. It's a great time to be alive and be a young person. Then the cover of Side by Side is a little bit more subdued. The colors have lost some of their saturation. Now she's dressed very practically. How much time passes for your fictionalized Bonnie Parker's dreams? How long do they sit in that mason jar going bad, spoiling some of them in the time between the two very different books, the two standalone books? Well, in Becoming Bonnie, that is very much Bonnie's origin story of how she comes to meet Clyde. And it's her more or less coming of age story. So it begins when she's 17 and she doesn't meet Clyde until she's 19. And a lot happens from 17 to 19 that readers can experience in Becoming Bonnie. And it's this rise and fall of who she wants to be and also the country during that time with the stock market crash. And I think in that book, Bonnie has this bright eyed, big eyed idea of what is waiting for her in the future. And she's going after it full force. And toward the end of becoming Bonnie, she realizes that that future needs to have Clyde in it. He swept her away and he's the man for her. So then with Side by Side, that is a full-blown crime spree story. And that one picks up two years after Becoming Bonnie concludes. And that, that origin story concludes. And then in Side by Side, she is in her 20s. She's more of a woman. She's more realistic. She has a clearer picture of the world and what it encompasses. And she's struggled. And there's one part where she says how all the pieces of fallen apart and clunked her on the head on the way down. So she's she's uh, not quite as wide-eyed, but more open-eyed to what's going on around her. You say that side-by-side side picks up from where Becoming Bonnie left off, but I wanted to tell readers that as somebody who looks at a book and says, could I give this to somebody who maybe is at a point in their life where they're more interested in that shoot up they want to get to the gunplay? I'm thinking of Tackleberry from... I'm thinking of Tackleberry from Police Academy, and he wants the gunplay. So that might be the right book side by side for somebody who's in that frame of mind and wants an exciting, thrilling adventure. But then there's the person who maybe is young, maybe has their life ahead of them. Maybe they are poor and all they have are their dreams, like William Butler Yeats says in that poem. And Becoming Bonnie is a perfect book for them. But they don't need to be read together. You don't need to read one before the other. You can read them one at a time separately and still enjoy them just as much as standalone pieces of Yeah, fiction. it's interesting. My publisher bought the origin story so because I, I wanted to understand who Bonnie was, what made her tick, what made her willing to even embark on that crime spree that she went on with Clyde. So that was the whole premise of becoming Bonnie. And then after that one was written, my publisher essentially was like, okay, well, what happens next? We need, we need another book. And I was like, yes, we do. <laughs> and I think a lot of readers really were looking for and expecting the crime spree story when they picked up Becoming Bonnie. So they were either very pleasantly surprised by the story arc and the premise of Becoming Bonnie, or they were a little confused, scratching their heads, wondering where the crime spree story was. So side by side kind of fulfills on both sides of the coin for the people who love the origin story but want to know what happens next or the people who just are looking for that crime spree story that we're familiar with from the films and the other adaptations. The phrase crime spree and talking about that being a strength of both books that they can stand alone, that side by side is not just a sequel where we're going to retell the same story, where we're going to pick up where we left off. Crime is something that is romanticized. In this era, the newspapers, all those dailies in New York City, for instance, they have a lot of pages to fill. But 
there's real blood in those people and those bodies that are laying in the street. Those people have suffered. And the people that die here at the hands of Bonnie and Clyde, although Bonnie doesn't pull the trigger on anybody herself, those are real. And that can be hard to do when you're researching this and you're saying, I'm fictionalizing it, but as a history-minded person, the people in the past, the victims, are alive to you. That can be a real challenge for an author. And I heard an interesting anecdote that you told on another interview where you said, I almost threw up my hands because I said, I can't deal with that crime anymore. I feel like I'm not doing the right thing by these people that they killed. And your husband says, well, we already got the advance, so I guess you do have to finish the book. <laughs> you know, So it's that kind of thing where... You care about the people. They're not just characters, even though this is a novel. You're trying to do right by the people who did suffer in the crime spree and yet also take on this really big challenge of making us want to root a little bit for Bonnie and Clyde, the good side of them. We're trying to root for that person inside them, the, the girl that Bonnie could have been and the man Clyde could have been. We want that part of them. We want those versions of them to succeed. But we also remember that there are victims and people that really bled and died at their hands. Yeah, I was so invested in Bonnie and even Clyde after becoming Bonnie, the first book, that when I was working on the sophomore book, I kept going with it. I felt compelled to continue to tell her story. But after kind of taking a step back and looking at the full arc of the crime spree and what went on and the obstacles and then the victims, that's when I started to get a little nervous and a little sweaty because those were very real lives that were impacted and taken and altered and family members who suffered because of Bonnie's actions and Clyde's actions. And the, what you were referencing there with my husband was that we had a conversation where I was saying that I felt bad writing about these victims, more or less. And I didn't know if I could continue and I needed to find a way to do that. And my husband was like, yes, you do, because we already spent two year in advance. So I, I looked eagerly for ways that I could humanize both Bonnie and Clyde. And they definitely weren't these monsters. I mean, they weren't good. <laughs> they took lives. And there's no way you can say that's a positive thing. But they had a bit of a moral compass, a little right or wrong in how they approach things. Like you said, Bonnie has never killed anybody. And Clyde even had an approach where he wouldn't shoot until he was shot at. So doesn't make it right that he shot back. But he liked to wait until he was cornered, more or less. You talk about the suffering that he experienced in prison that's sort of a, a murky area. And then that makes it not something you want to forgive, but you can understand where then he's just seeing the badge and then he's just having a problem with authority figures because he has really suffered. Yeah, that's one element that we never saw brought to life in the 1967 film. When Clyde was in prison, he was victimized for various reasons and in different ways. And when he was released from prison, he had this mindset that he was just out to get the law and he wanted to actually raid the prison that he was in. And that's a huge motivation throughout the entire book for Clyde. Bonnie has dreams for her and Clyde, and which is essentially finding land for them to hide out on and have this life where they can just be together. And while Bonnie is pursuing that dream, there's all these little moments where Clyde kind of detours her dream with his dream of getting back at the law. Let's talk about the title side by side and how it came about, because when we talked about Becoming Bonnie, originally you thought about making your sophomore novel being Bonnie. So that would very much be the present tense, which is how you write Bonnie's narration that comes from a poem, doesn't it? Tell us about that and how you decided to switch that title to Side by Side for this second book. Yeah, it, as you said, it, the book originally was going to be Becoming Bonnie and then Being Bonnie. And we originally wanted to tweak it just to make sure that those two books could very much stand alone. They are very different feels with the first one in the 1920s and the second one in the Great Depression. So we wanted to make sure they could stand alone have separate identities. And we were trying to brainstorm where the title for Side by Side could come from. And we actually borrowed the words from one of Bonnie's poems. And she says, 
someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few, it'll be grief. To the law, a relief. But it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. So we kind of pulled the title from her own words there. It was nice to be able to find those poems as a writer, I'm sure, and nice to read them. And I'll bet a lot of readers don't even realize that those are her words. They just assume that you put those in her mouth. But she did leave behind this dark poem here. That sounds almost too perfect, but that's real. And that's how she expressed herself. That is a real gift to an author to be able to write in her own words and apply them. Something like a poem, you can use it in various places. Here you used it in the title of the book. Yeah, and what's very interesting about this poem is that Bonnie wrote it a month prior to her death. So she was foreshadowing a little bit there. So it was something that I was able to use in the book at a very heightened moment to kind of really bring that plot element home. And there's other parts of the book, too. Many don't know that Bonnie was prisoned herself. And while she was in prison... She wrote a different poem that helped her decide if she should stay with Clyde or leave him and started a new life. So it was interesting to have that perspective with her own words and then implement it into the mindset of the book. It's something to read a fictionalized version of people that are already so mythologized themselves. For instance, there's a story of Bonnie kicking a man and you look into it then and you realize that that's not the case. In fact, she was outraged by that. She was kind of because she at the time she had a lame leg, right? So she said, well, I couldn't have kicked somebody even if even had she wanted to. How do you strike that balance? Because I imagine many people come to you and say, hey, you're writing this fictionalized version and I know what really happened, but even what they think really happened didn't really happen. And yet you're coming at it from a fictionalized perspective, almost creating your own legend and you're doing it honestly under a fictional label. How do people react to this? Because it's clear that there are still many passionate people who are so interested in their lives, their life on the run, and then their death. Yeah, with Side by Side, I tried to stick to the facts as much as I can or as much as I could. There are elements that I deviated with, and a lot of that was because I wanted to carry through some plot points from Becoming Bonnie. And with Becoming Bonnie as her origin story, there was so much that wasn't known about her life prior to Clyde. So I filled in the gaps and I tweaked some things to make those gaps more realistic. And I had a lot of fun with kind of creating what her life could have been like. So some of those elements that were from the first book, I wanted to make sure I carried over into my sophomore book for any readers who were coming from from Becoming Bonnie. But I do have some people who who point out the areas that aren't accurate. And I mean, that's fine. It's interesting to see what people and don't know. And I'm an open book. I'll tell people what I changed and why I changed it. I will say that for everything that I did tweak or alter, there was a reason behind it in regards to the storytelling. And how long did it take you to write it? About a year since we spoke last, I think, or more? Um. Well, with this one... I was under contract before I began writing, so the pace was a little quicker, four or five months to write it. You're writing about the jazz age in Becoming Bonnie, and I enjoyed that. It was a fun read. I mentioned the cover and how jazzy that looked for, you know, it's exactly what it is. You look at it, you know exactly what it is. You can almost hear the music playing in the background in Side by Side you're on into that Great Depression, and you mentioned the life of Bonnie and Clyde and them giving up their dreams. They're going through some hardship, very much reflecting the nation that they're in, reflecting America at the time, who thought that any dream was unattainable in the Roaring Twenties, right? And then you get the Great Depression, and you realize you're going to have to sell a lot of those dreams short, and not to mention then you're eventually facing World War One, which we know, and Bonnie and Clyde don't live to see, but you're seeing skyrocketing unemployment. You're seeing Wall Street suicides, an end to all of those good times. They really reflect that. How did you go about researching that heartbreaking history and keep it from bogging down the narrative? The one thing I really enjoyed as a writer about Side by Side is that it's told through Bonnie's eyes. So it's first person, it's present tense. We're doing and seeing everything exactly exactly at the same time as Bonnie. 
So I just wanted to make sure that any elements that I included in the book made sense into regard to what she was facing, where she was, who she was with. And if it wasn't something that wasn't on her radar, it wasn't something that made the book. And some of those facts you mentioned for the first book, things as basic as what her full name might have been. You give her the name Bonnelin and you have it be Clyde that shortens it to Bonnie and gives her gives her that diminutive nickname. Those holes are not there as much here when you're researching their life on the run. And yet you have another challenge. You have things like the pictures that they didn't intend for anyone. And I laughed at that because I said, hey, we can all relate to it. If someone found your iPhone or your computer and started looking at your personal pictures, you probably wouldn't be so happy with some of the things that they found you and you wouldn't want those pictures in the paper. And yet that's what happens to them. It's a very human moment that we can relate to. You had the opposite almost. You almost had too much information here in Side by Side and had to sift through it. Whereas I felt in Becoming Bonnie, when we talked about that book, you were able to let your imagination run wild and fill in those spaces a little bit more when you were trying to write the plot. Here you had to sift out the truth from the falsehoods as you tried to build a narrative. Yeah, and I think what really drove my decisions with Side by Side was ways in which I could humanize Bonnie. Not necessarily sympathize with her, but just understand her as a human being. And even those iconic photos you you just mentioned, they got into the hands of law enforcement and media after the place that Bonnie and Clyde and a couple other people were renting was ambushed. And they had to flee, leaving behind everything. So these photos that they playfully took that didn't really, didn't really dictate who they were, but they were just play acting, those who got into the hands of everybody because they were in every single newspaper after the law enforcement and media got their hands on it. And there's even a moment where I have Bonnie coming to grips with the fact that all of her possessions are no longer hers. She mentions how her toothbrush was taken and how the law enforcement now knows her bra size because they rifled through all her things. So those little moments I was able to kind of let people see things through Bonnie's eyes that she really was just on the run and nothing was really hers. Everything was kind of slipping through her fingertips. As you're describing side by side and and her journey and trying to humanize her, of all things, it's making me think of the Stanley Kubrick film, A Clockwork Orange, because here you see him and his droogs doing terrible things to people. You see them beating people. You see them raping women. You see them being really cruel. And yet through the course of the movie, when you see him being abused by the state and being put in that chair with his eyes pried open and tortured with, with the drugs that make him sick and strip away his free will, you still see him as a human being. And I feel like that's the same performance you did here. They're not doing those same things. They are, they're doing the murdering. But you manage to find a way where you touch your reader and say, yes, they're doing horrible things. But here's a little bit of why. For instance, you can see the frustration that would come out of their relationship when they're not as intimate as people might think. People might think that they pick up this book and it's going to be a, a lot of sex and and running around and just not caring and things like that or being almost a, almost an adult novel or a romance novel. You use that in the book in the best sense of the word use to develop their characters and make people sympathize with that because that's a very human thing. And that's something we've seen in a million movies. We've read it in a million books where, okay, two people are on the run, Sarah Connor, for instance, in Terminator. <laughs> the next thing you know, the, the people, because of the stressor in the moment and because they're on the run, they end up in the backseat of the car or in the bed or wherever. And in this case, that's something that has been robbed from them by what Clyde has lived in his life. Yeah, they don't have a lot of sexy experiences, you could say. I mean, there are some romantic moments that I include in the book, especially as Clyde's character evolves. It's not a glamorous lifestyle that they were living. And I that was something that was really important for me to bring across. And along with the emotions that they were having, Bonnie knew what she was doing was wrong. She, in her mind, thought she was going to have to pay the price for it. She was worried that the bad in her would be passed to her offspring. And she felt guilt and remorse. And she wasn't proud of how she was acting. But I think throughout it all, she just wanted to get to the other side. So it would all stop. 
So she kept going. She kept pushing. And Clyde was there right beside her, pushing just as hard as she was, if not harder. A lot of readers say that they almost disliked Clyde throughout the book because of how he pushed so hard and how he was a bit selfish and how Bonnie was really the the glue that kept everything together. Well, it's a real relationship in that way. We all have different relationships. We're both married, so you know how it is. And sometimes you're strong in a way that your spouse is weak or weak in a way they're strong or patient when they're not. It's a real relationship that way. You don't want them to just be both Clyde's with one of them happening to wear a beret. You want them to be different when you're reading the book and you want that conflict and you want them to be pulling and pushing. Speaking about Bonnie and how she knows what's coming or she thinks she'll have to pay for it. It's right there in that poem. That poem is not a celebration of her life. In those five lines, it tells you what she knows is coming, what she thinks is coming and fears is coming. And it's not glamorous. It's not we're going to go out in a hail of bullets and we'll take all you with us, coppers. I thought as somebody who likes the real history, what a wonderful way to go back and experience what their life on the run really was. Prohibition wasn't very glamorous. The Depression was not very glamorous. Gang violence, bank robbing, it wasn't something where you're constantly not caring. That's wonderful escapism. But if you want to have a book with some meat on its bones, a story that does make you think and question yourself a little bit and think, where's my humanity at right this minute? Side by Side is great for that because it's easy to love the good character. It's easy to hiss at the villain. But somebody who's a little complicated, you know, a lady on the run who's writing poetry, a man who's uh, abused in prison and has so much anger with him that you can sympathize with. That was really a wonderful part of this book and a very different journey from Becoming Bonnie. Yes, Becoming Bonnie has its hardships, but it's a lot lighter. And I've heard that from readers, too, who they said the first book was fun and energetic, whereas the second book, you're kind of just, you're going through it with Bonnie and Clyde. And I tried to give them a bit of a happy ending toward the end of Side by Side, but as it has to be historical and accurate, I uh, had to take that happy ending away from them, but I wanted to give Bonnie a little bit of bliss at the end. Speaking of Bonnie's poetry and of trying to find a way to have her express herself at the end of the book in a way you felt good about as an author, the voice is so important. The dialogue changing reflects the evolution of a character, which is key to any person and certainly key in fiction is you have to show some growth. How did you go about tweaking that to reflect Bonnie's disillusionment from that girl with the dreams in that mason jar to this one who knows that those dreams are not all going to come true? How do you go about that so that you can show that in little ways in her speech pattern, in the way she talks to people, in the dreams that she has, so you bring the reader along with you? You know, it's interesting that in Becoming Bonnie, I have... Bonnie as this dreamer and a little more whimsical and Blanche, who is her best friend and then who later goes on to marry Buck, who is Clyde's brother. She's kind of the snarky, realistic, sarcastic one. And in Side by Side, their roles almost switch. And Blanche tames a little bit and she wants to be married and settled and she has these dreams of that are realistic. And then you have Bonnie who kind of takes on more of that snark and sarcasm and her humor dries a bit. So it's interesting how their roles reverse. And that was definitely an intentional arc and difference that I wanted to show with those two characters within the two books. Is that something you picked up from reading about them or is that purely your creation of their evolution? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that it makes sense that Bonnie was more carefree and dreaming in the first book. And then as the Great Depression hits, her life becomes more struggled and hardships take over and it affects her and who she is. You're enjoying my conversation with Jenny L. Walsh, author of Side by Side, a novel of Bonnie and Clyde. It's a standalone crime spree story hot on the heels of 2017's Becoming Bonnie. You can enjoy that chat in our archives where we talk Bonnie, Clyde, 
and other author details like how Swedish fish candies make the reading experience that much better. <laughs> Visit JennyLWalsh.com or follow our guest at JennyLWalsh on Twitter and note that that's Jenny spelled with an I. Elise Hooper, author of The Other Alcott, writes, quote, full of charm and sly humor. Side by Side tells the story of Bonnie and Clyde's slide from lovebirds to jailbirds, and what an action-packed story it is. Vivid storytelling and a few shots of humanity breathe new life into this notorious duo. This book should be on everyone's most wanted list this summer. Jenny, Elise Hooper mentions breathing new life and humanity into this infamous duo. That's an important factor of the story. We talked about how you didn't want to romanticize the cold-blooded murder, but you also didn't want to linger too long on the depressing lot of ex-cons. You don't want the book to be depressing just because it's a Depression-era book. What positive things did you find back then? What things that were a little bit of an escape? It's, it's not comic relief, I wouldn't call it, but how did you figure out a way to lighten the mood a little bit? And what was the right way to do it without damaging your overall story where you know they're careening towards that car at the end? I think for me, a lot of the intrigue and fun comes with discovering details about the time and working in those details in a way that makes sense for the plot. For example, when Bonnie and Clyde are in Fort Worth at one point in the book, they realize a red light above the intersection. And that light actually existed back then. And it, it meant that the police who were patrolling that area had to go back and call their station to get their details. So in that situation, Bonnie and Clyde were fleeing. So that red light went on and all the police then had to go call and then learn, hey, Bonnie and Clyde are in your area, look for them. So it was interesting to work in those actual details. And another instance is how Clyde has this 16-year-old who runs with them for a little while shinny up a telephone pole to cut the wires. Because in those days, when wires were cut, that's it. And they had this head start to get to where they had to go because the town that they were currently fleeing had no way to call ahead to the next town. So adding those details, which is a lot of fun for me. And then I also worked in some personal moments. There's one point where Bonnie and Clyde have to create an alias when they're checking into a hotel. And I was able to use different celebrities of that time to essentially create my grandparents' name. So in the book, they checked in as my grandparents. <laughs> and it was a fun moment because I shared that with my grandparents and my grandfather put the bookmark right on that page so he could always find it. So I add in those little personal moments too. I am always interested in things that authors do to keep themselves motivated and keep themselves interested and amuse themselves by putting little stories in there that no one else may ever get. You're fortunate that you were able to share it with the people who were the source of the joke. It's great to be able to keep yourself motivated and then it also shows that that's part of your writing because in your writing, you want people to never feel like I was liking it to a fat guy swimming across a pool. If you listen sometimes to radio hosts who aren't very good, they'll sound like, oh my gosh, I'm so, I'm so tired. I, I can't wait to get to a, to a noodle where I can float or, or, a, you know, the, <laughs> they have a bar in the middle or get to the stairs because I just can't, I just can't swim anymore. And they're exhausted and panting. And that's the kind of thing where when you read a book that's well paced, something bad may happen. It's going to happen in the course of a book that's about Bonnie and Clyde, but you never feel like, oh gosh, I, I just want to skim ahead. And that's, that's a high compliment to your writing from my point of view. Yes. Thank you. We note in the book, as we're reading, we don't see Bonnie kill anybody. In fact, in real life, she doesn't kill anybody. That helps further soften any anger we might feel for a viewpoint character. Another way you show her softer side is through her song, through those poetry that we talked about. The title of the book it comes directly from the poetry. All that seems very real, but so does the pain. The pain seems real. And I found myself realizing I never thought about it. even when you when you see the bullet riddled car, maybe you think that, wow, that must have hurt. But I wanted to ask you to read one of those passages that captures some of that 
pain, some of that struggle that you include so that we can get to know just what Bonnie and Clyde will be meeting, just who these people are. So if you could set up that clip and read it to us, I would appreciate it. Yeah. So this clip actually comes a little before the pain. And another way, I guess I keep the book interesting for myself. And I mentioned including some personal details. And this segment actually includes a personal moment. And I think others can relate to it as well, which is something that intrigues me because even though this is historical fiction, I like it to have a contemporary feel and a feel that people can relate to. And Ever since I was a little girl driving, being driven down the road and then later driving myself down the road in a rainstorm and then you go under a bridge or through some kind of coverage and then the rain just stops until you pop out the other side. And I've always felt that that was such a strong, powerful moment that just for that blink of an eye, it's just quiet and then you're hit with the rain again. So I've always wanted to include that in a book and I wasn't sure how and I wanted to make sure it felt right. And then I found a spot in Side by Side that just felt so, so perfect for it. And this portion of the book is right after Bonnie and Clyde leave Dallas. They're essentially forced out of Dallas. You'll see why when you read. But at this point, they have just robbed their first At this point, I think it's a mom and pop shop and they're just feeling good about things and positive and they think they're on their way to their dreams. So that's where we are. I'll be damned, but excitement laces the air as we pull away from our first robbery and it's Clyde gets to driving, getting the car moving good around 50 miles per hour. It ain't long before a single fat raindrop lands on our windshield. The wind pushes the raindrop up and up till it streaks off the glass. Then, Mother Nature tilts her wrist and dumps a whole bucket on us. Clyde flicks on the single wiper. It struggles to keep up. The rainfall is invigorating, the sheer power of it. Clyde feels it too, leaning closer to the windshield to get a better vantage point at the sky. Where'd that come from? he asks. The barrage of rain nearly drowns out his voice. I shrug, not minding. The road is straight, lined with trees, leading toward a covered bridge and I haven't seen such awe on Clyde's face since before he was locked away. He adjusts his legs, pressing harder on the accelerator. I let out a gleeful noise, exaggerating the force of the movement pushing me against my seat. The rain pounds. The rain roars. We drive into the covered bridge, and it's quiet. Just like that. Abrupt. Sudden. Powerful. It's a moment I commit to memory, feeling as if right now, Clyde and I already live on our own little world where nothing can touch us, not even Mother Nature. His body faces straight ahead. Both of his hands grip the wheel, but his head turns toward me, his dimples appear. We pass by one, two, three openings in the bridge's walls. Each time, light blinks onto Clyde's face, illuminating the cheekbones and eyes. Then we pop through the other side of the bridge. The rain assaults us once more. It took one breath held in my lungs, and a few beats of our hearts. But it was magical, a moment made for us after months of being ripped apart. Now we're together again, nothing but opportunity ahead of us. They're completely alone, not just in the car, but in the world in that moment, it feels like. When you're reading it, it really really takes you inside there with them, and you're watching them, watching the rain. They have so few moments in their lives. That that says so much. That's some a moment that really... It's one that you linger over. You know how books, obviously, you you read them, and then sometimes there's some of those moments you say, that's one that that I sit with. And I'm glad you chose that one for that reason, because we can relate to that. You have that one perfect moment that people talk about, and then you realize they're going to have so few. And even though they're just coming from committing crime and killing people and all of these things, that's a human moment where I think... You fight to be the best version of yourself, hopefully, in life, and you want that for other people. And for them, they're they're fighting for that, and they get that that one moment, but it just can't last forever. It's that brief moment. Everything is held back, and there's suddenly silence where you didn't even realize how yes. loud the rain was. So what a wonderful detail to put in there. What a, what a wonderful moment to give them. You talked about wanting to give Bonnie a little bit of happiness or a happy moment. You give her one there where she has a special moment with him that he'll never share with anybody else. Yes. And then it's all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> well, the rain, the rain gets heavier, so to speak, right? Yes. You mentioned Blanche and we met her before in the first book, Blanche Barrow now. 
she returns in side by side and their roles reverse a little bit. There's a point in the gunfight where, or a gunfight for them, where Bonnie is saying they're all praying and she hopes God hears Blanche's prayers the loudest. And I thought that that was a very key detail. It's a really revealing detail, I guess you'd say. It would be so easy to have gotten rid of Blanche and just focus on Bonnie and Clyde to just keep them in that car under that bridge and say, let me get rid of these ancillary characters, especially since we now know you were writing on a bit of a deadline. Why did you keep Blanche along for the ride? Or did she, as such a vivid character, decide, hey, I'm getting in the car and you're not getting me out. I'm going with you to t- and I'm going to be in your next book too. How did she help you flesh out that central relationship in the book and why did you keep her around on the team other than I guess just historical reasons yes I mean it was historically accurate so so there's that (laughs) but Blanche was such a special character to me her voice was always so strong in my head and I've I've mentioned this in other interviews but I actually wrote Bonnie's voice to counter Blanche's like Blanche's spoke to me first um so she was just someone that I wanted as much as possible in the book, but she in real life and in the book was a very reluctant part of the crime spree. She wanted no parts of it. She just wanted to be with Buck, to have their own their own space, to do their own thing. And Bonnie and Clyde convinced them that they needed them to be with them for their sanity. At the point where Blanche enters the book, Bonnie's been running with Clyde for about a year and a half. She just wants normal. She wants her best friend. She wants to laugh and those moments of happiness again. And she had that with Blanche. So she's so eager to hold on to it again. But as things, I guess, dissolve throughout the book, Bonnie then begins to feel a lot of guilt about what Blanche faces and how the crime spree is affecting Blanche. And that the part that you referenced where Bonnie hopes God hears Blanche's prayers the loudest is because Bonnie just wants Blanche to be happy and out of this lifestyle. But how everything zigged and zagged does not end up good for Blanche. And she just feels a lot of guilt over it. You mentioned wanting a simple life, wanting to go off and have a family and not have this life on the run. Bonnie is casually stated as having sought fame. People just accept that as a fact about her. And I thought maybe it was one of the murky ones there. As I was reading the book, I try to separate some of that fact from fiction. And I'm fortunate that I get to speak to the author. So I get to ask you for the skinny, such as you're able to figure it out from what was a lot of dailies making stuff up outright often as most people know, listen to the show. And even still today, you know, there's a lot of facts that aren't right in the first draft of history. People want to sell newspapers back then. They want to get clicks now. So tell us with 100 years of hindsight in your deep nonfiction research to write side by side, what do you think of that view? Was that what Bonnie wanted or did she just want Glide? From what I could tell from all of my research, I didn't see Bonnie as someone who sought fame over everything else. And I think that's really how she's depicted in the film. And I think it worked well for her character in the film. It was a way to to give her some quick depth and motivation. But while in real life, I thought Bonnie was someone who enjoyed going to movies and enjoyed singing. I don't think she was somebody who wanted her 15 minutes of fame. And I think when the photos of her were released to the media and they're popping up in every newspaper, I think she dreaded it. There's actually one account where Bonnie and Clyde had taken a police officer hostage. And before she released him, she made the officer promise that he was going to go tell the media that those pictures did not accurately depict her. So I don't think someone who was all after fame would have been so defiant against those photos. The cigar picture, yeah. mostly, right? Yeah. Yes. She tells them ladies don't smoke cigars. She didn't want people to think she was running around smoking, right? Right. <laughs> that comes across in the book certainly is it wasn't a moment where she's trying to manage her image. She's just trying to 
take possession of herself, which I think is something that we can all relate to as readers, where she doesn't want people telling her who she is, and she doesn't want this caricature, and maybe she does see this slow-moving fate that she writes about in that poem. She just wants to get things right. She wants people to know who they are. And I come back to that poem again and again. You were kind enough to read it, but I had it written down because I wanted to definitely get to it because it does tell us about her. It tells her about her fears, about her hopes, and how she sees this caricature of her being created and then being tried in the court of public opinion. And she knows what the ultimate outcome is. Really a great topic for a book, really a rich character. Yeah. And it's interesting because there are people, well, there were people at the time who were pro Bonnie and Clyde. There was people who wrote into newspapers with love poems about Clyde. And then they're very, there's the other side of people who are very adamant against them. So it was interesting to, to read these little tidbits of information from both sides of the fence. And I think toward the end, Bonnie was more or less just tired of reading about herself, (laughs) especially the fake news, you could say, because there was moments where Bonnie and Clyde were accused of robbing a bank in a state that they weren't even near. And the media was doing it just to sell papers. So I think that just wore on her and she just, she wanted to be out of the headlines toward the end of the book. And that's something that I really wanted to depict in the story arc. I like that. I like that she's out there seeing what's happening to her. And yet she's trying in her little way to fight back against it. I think everyone can relate to it. Even if you're a terrible person, even if you are a criminal, you're committing crimes. If you still care about people thinking of you in the right way, at least, you know, hang me for what I did do. And it's, in fact, something that Clyde does where he tells people, put it all on me. Blame me for what happened if, if you get caught so that it doesn't it doesn't have to go to you. I'll just suffer for it. That's a selfless act that I can guarantee I would just never would have occurred to me before I picked up Becoming Bonnie and now Side by Side. That's a rich character. That's a selfless thing to do to, to say blame me because he knows the law is eventually going to catch up with him again. Yeah. I mean, both Bonnie and Clyde weren't good people. There's no way to condone what they did, but I also think that they were two people who didn't start bad, whose life and circumstances and their decisions, like 100% their decisions, turned them bad. Well, Jenny, I don't want to give away the end of Side by Side, although I'm sure people know ultimately the fate of Bonnie and Clyde. You've researched them so much. You've now written two books that stand boldly alone on their own about them. You're clearly a prolific writer. You now have two books sold under your belt, and you can crank them out, it sounds like. And you love to do the research and the watching of the old movies and all of these details, as well as weaving in your own story and even a little joke in there for your grandparents. What is up next? Can you give listeners a little sneak peek about where you'll be maybe in another year? Where are you going to focus your literary gun sights next? I would absolutely love to have another book for everyone to read. I just finished a draft of a story that I was so compelled to write. I was a woman possessed trying to get it done. I was just so into it. It's another real life figure. This one was set during the California gold rush. And I began by trying to find some interesting women of that time. And I stumbled upon this woman, Eleanor Dumont, and she is actually the reason why we have blackjack in our country. Like she originated it. She started it. I found it really interesting that I didn't know this and I looked deeper into her story and then I found it even more interesting that later in her life, she was playing a game against an individual and she took his last dime. And it did not sit well with this person. So instead of gracefully taking his defeat, he looked at Eleanor, noticed that she had a little bit of fluff on her upper lip because she's a little older at that point. And he used it to insult her. And instead of calling her Madame Dumont, he called her Madame Mustache. And in that moment, that nickname stuck and overshadowed her actual name even all these years later. If you were to put her name into Google, Madame Mustache comes up. And it really got under my skin that this 
angry man who, in I would say, is a little petty, changed her identity almost. So I wanted to tell her story prior to that moment and kind of give Eleanor the final word. Well, you're going to do for her what you maybe weren't able to do fully for Bonnie and Clyde. You gave us a full picture of them, but... As you said, they were criminals, so no way around the things they did. But that does make for an enjoyable read from the safeness of our couch and the security of our trains, <laughs> maybe when we're going to work, right? So I will look forward to your next book. You've already intrigued me. I love that period, and I love bringing somebody back who unfortunately gets that nickname. Another one who suffered from that was Mad Anthony Wayne, the great revolutionary mm. war hero. Somebody just said, what, is he mad? And everyone said, wow, that goes really well. And so that's what everyone knows the poor guy as, Mad Anthony Wayne. <laughs> and so here you'll do that for another character, for a woman who's been given a hard time. And I'll tell you that I'm glad that you're going to go back there and, and restore her rightful name for everybody. You are here today talking with us about Side by Side. Thank you so much for coming back again. It was as enjoyable in a different way than 2017's Becoming Bonnie. I really do appreciate you sharing these fictionalized stories of this infamous duo that electrified Great Depression America and can electrify us here in the 21st century again today. I wish you the best of luck with both titles, and I do look forward to that next book. Thank you. It was wonderful to speak with you. Again, the book is Side by Side, a novel of Bonnie and Clyde. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner shoots you through to Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra clicks, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. Thanks to Jenny L. Walsh for joining us a second time and for giving us another fictionalized story of Bonnie and Clyde's life on the run. Remember, you can enjoy our chat about her first novel, Becoming Bonnie, at HistoryAuthor.com or wherever you're listening. Visit our guest at JennyLWalsh.com and follow Jenny L. Walsh on Twitter. You can also let us know what you think. You can also let us know what you think of either of Jenny's books and the interviews on Twitter at HistoryDean, on our Instagram page, or at Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. That's it for this Outlaw installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west Sign things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular 